Now, those of you who have uh, been here on a regular basis, you came this morning anticipating what I have now, after the past couple of weeks, entitled the most difficult chapter of the Bible to preach, Daniel chapter 11. Um, but we're not going there this morning. Um, and just, you know, we're, we're open and honest here as a congregation. So I ended up with a, a pretty severe migraine headache yesterday. And uh, in the Lord's providence, um, I had also preached this week um, at Imago Day Christian Academy um, over in uh, Mills River. And uh, so I'd already prepared a second message for this week. So since I couldn't finish Daniel 11 yesterday, uh, this morning we're going to be in the book of Hebrews. So you can make your way there in just a moment. But before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, uh, we do thank you uh, for this opportunity to open up your word. We thank you, Lord, for the instruction that it provides to us, uh, that as uh, humans living in a sinful world, uh, being onslaught from, from seemingly every angle uh, as we attempt to live out our faith, that you have given us, Lord, this book uh, that provides everything for life and godliness, uh, that it does everything in our lives that we need. Uh, that we can depend upon it, we can rely upon it, we can trust in it. Uh, Lord, that we, there's, there's nothing else in this life uh, besides you and your word that we can put that kind of trust in. Uh, Lord, as human beings, we will fail one another. Uh, Lord, even those who we love deeply, uh, we will fail them from time to time, but your word never fails. Your truth never fails. So encourage us this morning as we study your word. We pray that the Holy Spirit will do his work in our heart. And we pray, Father, that as we leave, Father, we will leave encouraged about who you are and about who we are, and Lord, encouraged about the truth of your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Hebrews chapter 4 this morning. Hebrews chapter 4. And as we look here, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. Uh, but we're going to be focusing specifically on verses 12 and 13, but we need to read uh, the first part of that to set some context, and we're going to, going to do a quick overview of those first 12 verses. Uh, so if you're uh, able, uh, let's stand for the honor and the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 4, starting with verse 1, this is the Word of the Lord. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering His rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we've had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word which they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. For we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as it had been said before, today, if you hear your voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would have not spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall, though following the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him 
with whom we have to do. You can be seated this morning. Again, Hebrews chapter 4 here is a moment in the book of Hebrews. Now, the writer of Hebrews wrote this book to Christians. He wrote this book to the church to encourage them in their walk, to encourage them in their faith, these early Christians. But periodically throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer takes a moment to address those who were inside the church who were not yet truly Christians. You see, there were a lot of people, there were a lot of Jews who had renounced their Judaism. They had come away from those things from the past. They were no longer striving to do that. They were going to the churches, they were listening to the teachings, but they had not yet fully put their faith and trust in Christ. Again, they had renounced Judaism, but they had not yet become true Christians. And so the writer of Hebrews pauses in those moments here in this book in order to speak a challenge to those who had not yet put their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He wants them to understand it's great that you've renounced the Judaism, it's great that you've renounced those things, but now here something is in front of you and you need to make a decision. There is a decision that must be made and you must make that decision in order for you to enter in to what God has for you. And it's the same kind of thing that we do today. As we preach the gospel to people, this is basically what we're laying in front of them is there is a decision, the Bible says, that must be made. There's a command that God has given that you must repent. And so the writer of Hebrews continues to lay this before uh, those who were inside the church who, again, he had not yet put their trust in Christ. And he begins chapter 4 with this beautiful description of the rest that is available for us in Jesus Christ. And so he, he describes this rest by making an illustration using the people of Israel in the Old Testament as they arrived to the promised land. You remember this, God had promised them this land of rest, this land flowing with milk and honey, this place that they could come to and go and be forever secure in Him. And you remember as they got there, they sent 12 spies into the promised land to scope it out, to see what the situation was like. And as the 12 spies came back, they reported what they had seen, this land filled with giants and people greater than they were, and all of these things. And only two, Joshua and Caleb, out of those 12 spies said, we can go in and defeat these giants. And the people ended up listening to the other 10. And because of their disobedience, because of their lack of trust and faith in God, God punished the people of Israel. You remember that. Now, they had seen God do so many wonderful, amazing things. And here in this moment, even though the land was filled with giants, even though everything did seem insurmountable, all they were required to do was trust that what God said was true and he was going to take care of the rest. And they would enter into that land of rest that he had promised to give them. But they were disobedient. And that land of Canaan, that promised land, was just an illustration or a forethought of what the true rest is that we find in Jesus Christ. And so he, he opens this chapter by describing this rest. And I just want us to think about a couple of things about this before we get down to verses 12 and 13. If you think about that word rest, what does that word mean? What does it mean to rest? And so one commentator pointed out a couple of things that I wanted to, to focus on this morning. You know, first, the word rest means to be settled or fixed. If you're resting, you're not worried about anything. You sit down to rest because everything else is done. You know, for, for most of us, we probably have a place in our house where we like to sit down. It might be your favorite chair. It might be the couch. It might be a favorite corner in the house. But when you want to rest, you go to that one spot and you sit down because everything's seemingly perfect in that spot. You've arranged it in such a way that you can sit down and be comfortable. 
But when we rest, we really do three things in rest. We rest in, we rest on, and we rest from. Now thinking about that, when we rest in Christ, what does that mean? This believer's rest that the writer of Hebrews is promising to us is that when this rest comes, we can rest in who Christ is. That means we have a trust in him. That our knowledge of what he has done, of what he has promised, we can rest in that. We don't have to fear. We don't have to think about it because we know who Christ is. We rest in his trust. But we can also rest on it. If you were to look at me this morning, you see my hands up here, you could say that I'm resting on the pulpit. I'm leaning on it. I'm putting my weight on it. And I do that this morning. Why? Because I know that it'll hold me up. If this pulpit was made out of some old type of rotten wood and it was ramshackle, I'm not going to put my full weight and bearing on it because I don't trust it to hold me up. But we can rest on Christ. We can lean on God for our support. As we go through this life, this promised rest that God has given us means that in those moments of difficulty and despair, we can rest on him. This is that beautiful promise. The people of Israel, the children of Israel could have rested on God and trusted that he was going to take care of the giants in the land. And for those of us who are in Christ, we can rest on him knowing that no matter what we face in this life, that he is our constant source of help and strength. We have something to push up against. We have something to lean on when everything else seems, when we feel weak in the need, when we feel like we're going to collapse, we can rest on him. But we also rest from something. We rest from worry and we rest from work. Now, this is not to say that as Christians, we're not working. We are, but we're no longer working to obtain our salvation. Before you become a Christian, people think they can obtain some type of salvation from God and they work for it. They do good deeds, they give money, uh, they try to be good people as far as society is concerned because they're working for something. But in Christ, we're not doing that anymore. We're resting from that type of effort because we know what God has already promised to us. He's promised to give us salvation, not because of anything we have done, but what Christ has already done on our behalf. So we have this beautiful picture here of rest, and he points these things out to help those who are still wavering between one side or the other. He says, go on, put your faith, put your trust in him, rest in that promised blessing of rest that God has given. Just very briefly, I want us to look at a few things in these opening verses. Verse 1, it tells us that this rest is available. He says, therefore, let us fear if while a promise of entering his rest any one of you seem to have come short of it. He says the rest is still available. And that fear there, we know for fear, for a Christian, it's, it's a fear of reverence. We have a reverential fear of God. But remember what we also have found out about who God is too. Remember what Jesus said, fear not him who can kill the body, but fear him who after the body is dead can cast both body and soul into hell. For the unbeliever, they need to fear the judgment of God. And they need to understand that without Christ, judgment awaits them in the end. So he says, let us fear. He says, because here the promise remains, but yet just for a moment and you come short of it. If you're disobedient, if you don't put your trust and faith in him. And this is something that we need to remember every time that we talk to a lost person, every time we talk to an unbeliever. In that moment, when we're talking to them, in that moment when they hear the gospel proclaimed, that rest is still available for them. Because God is offering it there in that moment. But that promise is not always there. There's not another promise that God has given to a lost person that just because they heard the gospel today that they'll get to hear the gospel tomorrow. There's not a promise that they'll ever hear it again before they leave this world. 
That's why we see this command in the scripture, what today is the day of salvation, because we aren't guaranteed tomorrow. So this rest is available, and people need to know this and to trust in it. So the writer of Hebrews is telling these people, he says, you know the truth. You know what the gospel has said. You know what Christ has said. You know what Paul and the other apostles have said. Now put your trust in this rest available in Christ. Verses 2 and 3 tells us that it's about faith. Because it says, for we've had the good news preached to us just as they did also. Now, obviously, we know that the Old Testament Jews did not have the gospel preached to them in the same way that the gospel was preached to the New Testament church. But it was preached to them in the fact that God had promised them a rest. He had promised them a blessing if they were obedient and did what he asked them to do. They had this good news, and they knew that a Messiah was coming and some generation later. But notice what it says. It says, the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those that heard. What a tragic statement, right? To hear something of such value, of such worth, of such good news, and it to be of no profit to someone. Have you ever thought about that? That the fact that you could be preaching the gospel to a room full of people, they're hearing, every person in that room is hearing the exact same words. And to some, it's beneficial because it encourages them, it strengthens them. But to some, it's of no profit to them. Why? because they have not been united in faith. Because it's not enough just to hear the gospel proclamation. You have to put your faith and trust in it. You have to put your faith and trust in Christ and who he is to be strengthened and to experience that rest. Notice number four, or verse four, it tells us that this rest is God's rest. This is why we have this rest, because when God rested on the seventh day, he was declaring and talking about this rest that ultimately would come in Christ. Christ is our Sabbath rest. He is that one whom we trust in and rely upon. Verse 6, he says, Therefore, since it remains for some to enter in, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying through David, so long as it had just been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The good news was proclaimed to them, That rest remained to them, but they did not enter because of disobedience. They did not trust and believe that God's word was true. They did not have faith. That verse 7 there is, is such a poignant statement. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. I think one thing is that people don't truly understand and I think sometimes even Christians forget, is the fact that the more someone hardens their heart to the gospel, the harder it is for them to hear the truth of God's word. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, and you hear the call of the gospel and you understand what it means to put your faith and trust in Christ, God says, do not harden your heart. Because the more you harden your heart, the less likely you are to hear the true call of the gospel you'll find people whose hearts have become so hardened that they no longer hear the beckoning call of the gospel unto them. Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says today, don't put it off, but do it today. Now verses 8 through 10 talks about the rest that God has given, that the rest that Joshua could have given them in the promised land would not have been a true rest, right? Because, and that was not what they were looking for. They were looking for a Sabbath rest, he says, verse 9, for the people of God. 
He says, for the one who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from works as God did from his. Because we're no longer working for our faith. We're no longer working for our salvation. We are resting in Christ. He says, therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. There is an urgency to responding to the gospel. We must remember this as believers. There's an urgency. I bet we could go around the room this morning and and probably almost every one of us could share the story of someone who we knew who died suddenly, tragically, or at a young age. Right? Because none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. We all think that we're going to live to be 80, 90 years old, but there's some of us in this room who won't see 40. There's some of us in this room who won't see 65. And it will come unsuddenly and unexpectedly. And that's why it is so powerfully presented in the Scriptures that we are to call people to make a decision today. And that doesn't mean to coerce them into a decision. We're not leading people in a prayer and proclaiming them saved. But we call them to that point. We're saying, you need to put your faith and trust in Christ. Here's what God says about who you are. Here's who you are. And here's what the Bible says you do in response. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You need to do this. It's a call. It's a beckoning. Now, verses 12 and 13 are where I wanted to spend the bulk of our time this morning. So let's look there. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I want you to notice three things that we're going to look at this morning about the word of God. Number one is the word of God is alive. Number two, the Word of God cuts. And thirdly, the Word of God discerns. It tells us that the Word of God here is living and active. If you have the King James, it says quick and powerful. Two very descriptive words here to describe what God's Word does and the ability that it has as it works its purpose in people's lives. It's alive because it's not dead. It has a living power. It's alive because it's not like other books. Now, I love to read, and I know many of you in the room here, and so if we went around and asked what your favorite book is, I'm sure anyone, and and we'll, 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 we'll qualify that by saying your favorite book outside the Bible. Mine is Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne. I've probably read that book at least 15 times uh, over the course of my life. It's one of my favorite books. Phineas Fogg and Parapartout as they go around the world, see if they can do it in 80 days and make it back to London. But you know what? As many times as I've read that book, there's never a moment when I reread it where all of a sudden I'm like, you know, I've never thought about that before. Because it's, it's just a book. It's the creativity of one man putting pencil to paper, and writing out a very creative and very well thought out story, but it's not alive. It's not living. There's nothing active about it. It, It's just a story. Now, compare that to the thousands and thousands of books that have been written over the course of human history. Now, most of you who know me know that I, I love books. I have far too many books, people would say. 
And one of the things that I love to do is I love to find old, out-of-print books, especially biographies. Because years ago, you know, today, anybody can print a book. I could sit down and write a book full of gibberish and go on Amazon and have it self-published and have copies of it in hand by the end of the week. But a hundred years ago, if you were going to write a book, it had to be something worthwhile. There had to be a, a particular story or an interest in order for somebody to put out the money that it would take to publish a book. But oftentimes what you find is you find books that were published 150, 100 years ago about people who nobody today even remembers. But at one point in time, they were important enough that a biography was written about them. They spent a lot of money to publish these books. But then the years went by, and now nobody even knows who those people are. There are countless numbers of books that have been written that in their day were the most popular books of the day. People would have said, man, have you, have you read this new book by so-and-so? Man, what, what an incredible piece of work. And today, nobody even knows who it is. Hundreds of thousands of books have done that way. Why? Because they're not living. They're not active. They're not powerful. They have nothing to them. Now, compare that with the Word of God, who since its inception and publication in written form especially in the English language, has always ranked at the top of the bestseller list. And in fact, I'm still, it's still sure, it was true up until a couple of years ago that the number one most stolen book in the United States was the Bible. And I want you to think about the times as you study the Bible and you read a passage of Scripture that you've read countless number of times before, but all of a sudden that Scripture pops off the page to you in a way that it never has because it's a living book. And the things that we experience, the things that we go through, the trials and tribulations, the highs and the lows of life, all begin to culminate as we read the Scripture. Today, we're, we're having a baby shower, and we're going to read from the Psalms at that baby shower where it talks about children being a heritage from the Lord. Now, you know, when you're single and you don't have any kids, you can read that passage, you can believe it to be true, you can understand what it's teaching, but that scripture doesn't make as much sense to you until after you have children. And once you have children and you have grandchildren, you have great-grandchildren, you begin to see the generations laid out before you, then all of a sudden that scripture is awakened in a new light. And God does that so many times because his word is not dead. It has a living and active power. It's living. And because it's living, because it has that life to it, that means that it's something that every person on the face of the earth must answer to. Because these are not just words on a page. These are the very words of a living God. And it is His command, and it is His declaration to the world about what He wants. He's laid it all out here in black and white on the pages in front of us. And so every person will give an account to the Word of God, not just Christians. We'll give an account for how we live our life, but lost people too. They think they're living their life without responsibility to anybody else. They think they're living their life answering only to themselves, but there will come a day when they stand before God to give an account for their lives. And when they say, well, God, how was I supposed to know? He would say, well, I gave you my book. I gave you my word. I gave you everything that you needed to know on how I expected you to live out your life, and yet you chose to reject it. Because it's living, it demands a response. 
but it's also active. And that word active means that God's word actually does something. It has a power to actually perform things in the lives of people, the most evident of which being when someone comes to faith in Christ. The word of God is preached, the gospel is believed, and it actually does something in the hearts and lives of people. The scripture tells us, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away, behold, all things have become new. What does the scripture teach us? How shall they hear without a preacher? Right? It's because it's not just about knowing who God is. It's about believing and hearing the truth of his word. One commentator pointed out that wherever God's word is taken seriously, things begin to happen. You can look back when Martin Luther all of a sudden was awakened to the truth of God's word and was converted and believed God's word to be true. And alongside him, all of the other reformers began to believe God's word and proclaim God's word and to teach God's word. And what happened? The entire world as we know it was changed through the Reformation. You look back at great history and revivals of the past. You can look at the revival in Wales. You can look at the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening specifically here in America, when God's Word was preached and people took it seriously and things changed. When we look at our world and our culture around us and we say we want things to be different, we don't want America that we have now, we want America to be a godly America, then what do we do? Well, we believe God's Word to be true. We build our faith and principle on the fact that this is true, that God really has said these things and that God will really do what he says he's going to do. That's when the word becomes alive in our hearts and in our lives is when we truly put our faith in it. I think far too often as believers, we proclaim with our mouth our belief in the power of God's word. But when it comes to putting feet to it, Oftentimes, we are much less confident. We believe that God's word is true, but then when we're put in a situation where we're called to stand upon it, oftentimes we can equivocate a little bit. And what we need to do is to be bold in our assurances that because this truly is the word of God, that we can proclaim it and believe it and trust in it without fear. So the word of God is alive. But secondly, I want you to notice he says that the word of God cuts because he says it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Now, we don't fight with swords much anymore, but there was a day and time when that was the preferred weapon of warfare. So you would go out onto the battlefield with your sword and you would fight hand-to-hand combat. Now we see swords are referenced oftentimes in Scripture, but most poignantly we see the word sword referenced to the Word of God. It talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God there in Ephesians. We see that when Jesus comes, there's a sword coming out of His mouth. His Word is proclamation because Jesus is the Word. So we see that word sword because that is the, the, the greatest weapon that God has given to us as believers is His Word. It is a two-sided sword. What does that mean by a two-sided sword? Well, if you are knowledgeable about weaponry, there are certain types of swords that are only sharp on one side. The other side of the sword is blunt. Now, that's problematic if you're in a situation where you have swung one way and you need to come back the other because now all you have is a blunt weapon. But a two-sided sword will cut both ways. 
It doesn't matter which way the sword is swung. It doesn't matter which position is in your hand. You can grab it up and swing it, and you know that no matter which way it goes, you're going to have a sharp cutting edge. Now, why would God use that to describe his word? Because that's exactly what the word does. The word of God is his precision instrument to cut and to flay open the heart of man. Firstly, to expose them for who he truly is. To open up our hearts to see the wickedness and the deceit on the inside. So God's word is a weapon that he uses. And notice he says, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and of both joint and marrow. So God's word cuts and it cuts deeply. It doesn't just cut on the surface, but it is able to pierce and to cut to the deepest part of what it means to be a human. The writer of Hebrew here uses the word soul and spirit. The word soul refers to really our, our outside affections. Both humans and, and, and animals have these outside affections. But then there's the spiritual side. He's talking about that God's word is able to look at the outward actions of the, of the human. Those things that everyone sees, the things that everyone would be visible to discern. But that God's word, or God's word also cuts to the spiritual side, to the intellect, to those things that on the inside that only we think we know. The word of God examines the totality of man. God knows your thoughts and he knows your will. God knows your desires and he knows your intentions. The writer here goes on to say that it doesn't just cut through the soul and the spirit, but both to the joints and the marrow. Those are the deepest and most difficult get-to parts on the human body, if you think about it. Obviously, the joints are where everything's connected. Now, if you've ever, and I don't mean to be too grotesque here this morning, but if you've ever uh, killed an animal and skinned it, you know that those parts are the hardest, the joints, and where those muscles and everything come together and the cartilage that holds everything together. It's difficult to cut through. You have to have a really sharp knife in order to be able to do that. It's difficult. It's challenging to get to. And the marrow, where's the marrow? Inside the bone. So in order to get to the marrow, you've got to be able to cut open that bone. Surgeons have to use precision saws and instruments in order to be able to cut through bone when they're doing surgery. But here it tells us that the word of God is so sharp, it's able to cut even those deepest and hardest to get to parts of the human body. Again, speaking to the idea that, brothers and sisters, there is nothing about a human person's life that is hidden from the eye of an all-seeing God. Everything is visible to him. So many times we think that God only sees the same things that everyone else sees. So if we do something physical, right, someone gets mad at us and we throw up our hand at them or we steal something, well, surely, you know, we understand God sees those things. But the scripture tells us that God knows the secret thoughts of our heart. Because far more often the secret thoughts of our hearts are more wicked than what we do outwardly. And the only thing that restrains us is because we know of what would happen to us if we did those things. Now, I'm not talking about a passing thought, right? All of us, there are thoughts that pass through our heads sometimes that we think about, like, where in the world did that come from? No, I'm talking about the fact that your neighbor makes you mad, and then you sit down in your mind, and you begin to plot your revenge on how you could get back at him. Now, you don't say anything outwardly. You don't do anything physically, but in your mind, you are thinking about all the ways that you could do things to get back at your neighbor. 
Someone makes you so angry that your mind thinks, well, man, I would just love to just do something to him. This is why Jesus pointed out that to look with lust is considered adultery, it's considered adultery in the eyes of God. And to look with hatred is considered murder in the eyes of God. Because the man who looks with lust would commit adultery if he wasn't afraid of being found out. The man who looks with hate would commit murder if he wasn't afraid of getting found out because that is the intention and the desire of the heart. And so the word of God cuts to the deepest things and exposes all of that open before us and before God. And it's a beautiful thing. Just as the surgeon who goes in to remove cancer from a person needs to have the greatest of instruments in order to be able to go in. Now, what a surgeon does when they remove cancer is not easy. It's not painless. But it's very challenging, right? And they spend the appropriate amount of time cutting and cutting away in order to get everything out of there because they want to be sure that when they sew that person back up, that they have done their work effectively and cut every single cancerous tumor out of that person. And they do that with precision instruments in the deepest places in the parts of the human body in order to get it out. And God's word does that to us. He cuts and exposes everything open to us. Now, remember, the writer here is is directing the intention of this to those who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. Because he wants them to understand you may be fooling the other people around you, but God knows who you really are. Let's be honest this morning. It's easy to be together with a group of people in a church and to put on a really good show. You can be here every time the church doors are open. You can be quoting Bible verses. You could have studied your Sunday school lesson. You can be a part of the prayer meeting. You can be singing. You can be doing whatever it may be. But that does not mean that you've truly put your faith and trust in Christ. And you can fool the people in the room around you, but you cannot fool, the writer of Hebrews says, you cannot fool the Word of God, and you cannot fool God Himself. So it cuts. It's able to look into. And notice what he goes on to say. He says he's also able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He says, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. God's word discerns everything. God is able to bring light and knowledge to the darkest of minds. Matthew Henry said, the word will turn the inside of a sinner out and let him see all that is in his heart. This is a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing because we need to be exposed truly and vulnerably before God in order that we see who we are and we see how desperately we need him. But there is nothing, it says here, that can be hidden from his sight. So many people think that they live in a world where they can hide things from God, but God will open up everything and reveal it to them. The Word tells us here that as He judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, that all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him. That word open that's used there spoke of two different types of things. The first was the hand-to-hand combat of two wrestlers. 
And that in the midst of that combat, that one wrestler would take the other wrestler by the throat and hold him and pin him down. As he looked into his eyes, as that was sure sign of probable victory. And the second one was in a, in a criminal case where when the criminal would stand before his accusers and before the judge, they would take a dagger and they would tie it to his neck with the point going up so that the criminal could not lower his face in shame or look down, but was forced to look upon his accusers and to look upon the judge. And so this is the language that the writer of Hebrews is giving to us here to help us understand. It's like you cannot hide from the Word of God. You can choose not to, to listen to it. You can choose to put it away. You can choose not to read it, but you cannot hide from it. There is coming a day when all of those who have rejected God's word, all of those who have cast it aside, will stand face to face with God. And there will be nothing they can do about it. They're not going to be able to cower away. They're not going to be able to look the other way. They're going to be face to face with a living and a holy and a just and a righteous God and have no response to give. Because why? Because they have not entered into that rest that was promised. They rejected it. They cast it off. Why would the writer of Hebrews use such strong language here? Why would he talk about the word being a sword that would cut you open and fillet you open, cut to the very deepest parts? Why would he talk about the word of God peering into the heart? Why would he talk about the idea of someone being face to face in judgment with God? Because he understands how desperately people need to be awakened to see their need for Christ. We live in a world where people are captivated by so many things. We live in a world where people find their hope and their joy and their peace and their satisfaction in so many things. And in order to help people see the truth of who Christ is, we have to help them see how helpless they are. They may have a lot of money, but guess what? Stock market crashes, the economy collapses, it's all gone in an instant. They may have the greatest fame and success on, in movies or social media, but guess what? Tomorrow morning, another person rises up, and that success and fame is all cast over to the next person. You're just a forgotten has-been. None of the things in this life that people are seeking satisfaction, none of them will ever provide true lasting peace, satisfaction, and joy, and hope. The only thing that people have is to find that Sabbath rest that God has promised. And the glorious thing is that he's promised it. It's just sitting there. He says, come, rest, find your satisfaction in me. It says that all eyes are open and laid bare to him. Laid bare to the eyes of him with all we have to do. I shared this illustration several years ago, uh, but I think there's probably plenty of you here enough that uh, didn't hear it the first time that I can share it again. Anytime I read a passage of Scripture that talks about this, that talks about the power of God's Word and its work that it does in our heart, it reminds me of uh, very early on when I first started to work um, at the museum uh, my boss, Dale, sent me one day to take a gas tank off of a motorcycle and to sandblast it. He was going to use this particular gas tank on a new mo a motorcycle or a new project he was working on. And so he needed to strip all the paint off of it down to the bare metal so it could be repainted again. Now you look at the tank and it looked perfect. All the metal was perfectly smooth. 
Didn't look like there were any defects or anything like that. So I opened the sandblasting cabinet up and I began to peel away the, the layers and the years of paint. And as I did, if you're not familiar, sandblasting cabinet is this air-powered machine that blasts these tiny little uh, molecules, these tiny little pieces of, of glass, basically what it is, glass beads, and it will just totally strip the paint or the rust off of anything. And so as I began to strip away at this tank, all of a sudden I came across this one part that was, was Bondo. There had been a, a dent there, and so somebody, instead of, of hammering the metal back out, had just put some Bondo in there and smoothed it over. I kept blasting away, and as I got closer down to the bottom, I started finding these tiny little pinholes in the gas tank. And then kept going, and a little bit further, I finally got to one spot where there was a hole about the size of a quarter that had rusted away on the inside of the middle of the tank, but it just hadn't yet punched through on the layers of paint on the outside. So when we got done, I'd exposed everything on this tank and found that not all was as it appeared to be. On the outside, it looked completely perfect. But as the penetrating power of that sandblaster got down to the true cause, it exposed every single flaw and detail and problem with that tank. That's what God's Word does. It's powerful enough that no matter what we may look like on the outside, no matter how we may present ourselves, it cuts and exposes and takes everything away. So actually, if you have a King James, it talks about standing naked. It strips all of us off, that there's nothing that we can hide from the Lord. So now how do we apply this to us? Firstly, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, today's the day. The gospel is proclaimed, and he says, today is the day. Do not put it off. Do not harden your hearts, but put your faith and trust in him. You may be here this morning, and maybe you've been a member of a church. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time, and maybe you think this morning, well, I've, I've got a front I've got to keep up. Right? I mean, people think they know who I am, and I can't do this. Brothers and sisters, don't, don't care about what anybody else in this room thinks but God. He's the only one that matters. Trust in Him. Find that rest and rely upon Him. But for those of us as believers, as we look at this text, what do we think? Number one, be encouraged by the work of the Word of God in your life now as a believer. Because God's Word still does the same thing as it continues in your life. For those of you who have been Christian for a number of years, you know that there are times where you work through a sin issue in your life and you deal with it and you think, okay, I got it. And then God says, okay, we got that one. Now let's talk about this one over here. That's God's word. That's that two-edged sword cutting and exposing. My encouragement to you this morning is let the word of God work in your life. Allow that sword to cut through and to expose those things in order that you may be a more obedient disciple of Christ. Number two, as a believer, we must trust the Word of God to do its work. The Scripture promises in Isaiah that God's Word will not return void, that it will go forth and accomplish that forth which it was sent to do. So trust in the Word of God to do its work. As you're sharing the gospel with your friends, with your family, with your loved ones, believe in the power of God's Word to do its work in their lives. And thirdly, don't be ashamed of it. What I mean by that is, 
is that when we faithfully proclaim the Word of God, oftentimes people are offended by it. Oftentimes it's going to hurt when it cuts through the sinfulness of people's hearts and lives. And in the time in which we live, there's a temptation for us as Christians to try to soften the edges of God's Word because it does cut so deeply, because it does cut so sharply. But brothers and sisters, don't be ashamed of the Word of God. Allow it to do its work in people's lives. I used that illustration earlier of, of a doctor. You've heard it said before, I think it was probably Ray Comfort that I heard it from the first time, that a doctor would not be loving if he just went in and he, he knew somebody had cancer and he just went in. He's like, well, you know, I, I don't want to give you this bad news because it's, you probably wouldn't like me if I told you this, you know, so let's just pretend that everything's okay, right? You can come back and see me. We'll have a cup of coffee and we'll talk about our fishing trips and, and everything will just work out in the end. That's not a good doctor. And it's the same thing for us as Christians. We have to be willing to have those hard conversations with people because they need to understand that just as a cancer doctor, he says, you've got to deal with it. We've got to cut this out. We've got to deal with this. Otherwise, it's going to take over your body and you're going to die. For the Christian, it's far worse, right? Because if somebody does not deal with the sinfulness in their own life, not just so they die here physically, but they're dead spiritually and they're going to go to eternity in hell forever. So we must be willing to have those conversations. We must not be ashamed of the sword of the Spirit, the sword of the Word of God that He has given to us. Believers, this morning, be encouraged the Word of God that has done its work in your life and be encouraged in that rest that comes from it. Because God has cut so deeply, because He has cut so sharply, He doesn't just leave you there with open and gaping wounds, but He has provided for you a rest a rest that lasts in this life, but a rest that is eternal in the one to come. Let's pray together. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this instruction. Lord, we thank you, uh, Lord, for the truth of what your word is to us as believers. Lord, we thank you uh, that it has cut deeply in our own hearts and lives to expose us before you. And that, Father, because of that promised rest, Lord, that we now know who we are in Christ. Lord, that you have exposed our sinfulness. We have confessed it before you. You have done that work of cutting those things out. Your Holy Spirit doing its, His work in our life. So, Father, I pray that you would guide our hearts this morning. If there is one person here, and Lord, who this morning, they know that that's them. They know that they have, they have known the truth. They have heard the truth. Lord, perhaps they have even told other people that they believe this truth. But they know in the deepest recesses of their hearts, they've never entered into that rest. They've never put their trust in Christ. We pray that this morning would be that day for them. Lord, for those of us who are believers, we pray, God, that you would encourage us in the work. Lord, to stand boldly upon the truth of your word. Be encouraged in it. Lord, to use that weapon that you've given us. as we go out in this world or to help people see their immense need of Christ. And Father, we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.